0: Welcome to I Am Telling, where we have real stories from real students. Our podcast features students from South Mountain Community College Storytelling Institute, located in Phoenix, Arizona. These stories are recorded live in a classroom setting with just one take. So I've struggled over the years with um, what a real man is. What is the measure of a real man And I grew up in South Idaho, and we had some particular ways that uh, you tested your testosterone. One of them was on the athletic field. So uh, I'm with Robert Stewart, junior high, playing basketball, and we're at the championship game. We have never beat O'Leary, junior high, our crosstown rivals before, but we're five points ahead Then O'Leary scores, we're three points ahead, and the ref gives me the ball out of bounds underneath the O'Leary basket. And I see him start to count down. I've got five seconds to throw it in, and all I can see is Larry Blackwood's number 33 in front of me. I can't see the court, I can't see my players, I can't see anything but Larry Blackwood. So the ref is still counting down, And I realize I've got to throw it in, so I just rear back and I heave it as hard as I can, hoping that it'll go to one of my players. But it hits the back of the backboard, bounces off the wall behind me. This is a small gym, and hits me in the head. (laughs) Now it's one point difference, and uh, the ref hands me the ball, to throw it in bounds again. And I can hear the cheering section from Robert Stewart Junior High go, Oh no! And Coach Reynolds stands up, and I've never seen an obese man move so quickly. He does a timeout and uh, puts an athletic kid in my place to throw the ball in. We throw the ball in, we beat O'Leary by one point. No thanks to me. Hunting is another way in my culture that we established ourselves. So in the fall, when pheasant season opened, we always had these rooster feathers that the the boys would bring to class, long, tapered, beautiful feathers. They'd put them in their hat or behind their ear or they'd make a pen out of them. I wanted one of those feathers. So I convinced my dad to take me hunting. We went to Uncle Melvin's farm and we were walking through the stubble of the alfalfa field and up ahead of us we could see a pheasant sort of scurrying through the stubble. My dad is such a bad shot that he knows that if he scares up the pheasant, he'll miss it. So he just raises the 12-gauge to his shoulder and aims and boom! There's this explosion of blood and flesh and feathers there's nothing left to eat, nothing, no feathers to wear to school. And that's pretty much the end of my hunting career. Um, another way that we proved ourselves was, you know, being a mechanic, being able to work with cars and trucks. My dad never helped my mother very much around the house because he said he was in charge of truck maintenance. That was his job. So twice, I remember, he took me out to the pickup truck and tried to teach me how to change the oil in the truck. Twice, we drained the transmission fluid. (laughs) (laughs) So my initiation into real manhood is not really going very well. This is, you know, I came of age in the 60s and 70s, and it's a very conflicted time in the nation almost maybe worse than today. There was Vietnam and My Lai Massacre and the burning of draft cards. There's the assassination of Malcolm and Martin and the Kennedy brothers. Cities are burning because of race riots. Bull Connor has his attack dogs and his fire hoses. Uh, then there was Watergate and special prosecutors. and So very, very divisive. And into this divide steps this patriotic icon, evil Knievel. He wears his leather red, white, and blue outfit and his red, white, and blue cape and rides his motorcycle. We had seen him jump the fountains at um, Caesar's Palace. He jumped over two mountain lions and a box of 50 rattlesnakes in Moses Lake. He jumps over um, 15 um, semis, side by side by side, at King's Island. And most of these were televised on the wide world of sports. Every afternoon, Saturday afternoon at 5 o'clock, we hear Kurt Gowdy say, you know, welcome to the wide world of sports, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. We travel over the world to show you the drama of human athletic competition. And of the top 10 um, wide world of sports, Evil Knievel had seven of the top 10 most popular viewed wide world of sports. So we had, um, I don't think we even called them action figures, but we had Evil Knievel on his motorcycle with a plastic energizer. It's this red plastic thing with a white handle. You put evil uh, on the motorcycle and then in the Energizer and then you crank him up and then you let him go. On TV, he launched out of that Energizer and did a loop-de-loop or he'd do a jump or he'd ride into the sunset. That was so cool. But in fact, when you energize Evil Knievel, he goes about three or four inches in and falls over. <laughs> we had, you know, our bikes with the banana seat and the raised uh, handlebars, and we were doing jumps like Evil Knievel. I outgrew some of those things, but I still had this fascination about Evil Knievel. I remember in high school physics class. I hated that class. I hated the math and the equations, but there was one thing I liked about the physics class. I liked the demonstrations. I think it was because it was like stories. You know, ordinary objects moving through space and time collide with each other, and there is dramatic, you know, results from those collisions, sometimes magical transformations. So we walk into class one day, and Mr. Barris is throwing a tennis ball up to the ceiling and back. And he's saying, ladies ladies and gentlemen, today we're going to talk about escape velocity. He talks about the gravitational field that pulls that ball back down to the earth. But he says, if it managed to accelerate fast enough, it could escape that gravitational field and be launched into space. The thing that I really admired at that point about Evil Knievel was he was raised in a town sort of like me, Butte, Montana, and he managed to escape that town to fame and fortune. That's what I needed, escape velocity. So later on in 1974, Evil Knievel comes to my hometown, Twin Falls, Idaho, sitting on the edge of the Snake River Canyon to do his jump over the canyon. And everybody in town is so excited about this. Evil Knievel's coming to town. This is going to put Twin Falls, Idaho on the map. And entrepreneurs came out. We're going to make money. This is going to be great. So I drove from the College of Idaho in Caldwell, Idaho, 160 miles to my hometown so I could see him. Evil had just bought this um, uh, tombstone for him as a publicity stunt. So it's eight feet tall, uh, four feet wide, and about four inches, five inches thick. uh, As a way to say, you know, I may die doing this. And of course, it got more people interested. He said he was good on the takeoffs, not so good on the landings. But that's what people came to see, was those faulty landings. He broke 433 bones in his body in his lifetime. So I'm there. Susie Woods and I are sitting on the hood of my 1967 um, Chevy Malibu. And there are thousands of people on the country road beside us waiting for this jump. So we at 3.35 in the afternoon hear this muffled roar in the distance and then we see this cloud of smoke and steam rise above the horizon and then something emerges and then disappears. There's controversy to this day about whether he, Evil Knievel, pulled the parachute prematurely or whether it was a malfunction. But the parachute ejected and he went uh, you know, 100 feet in the air and then descended on this parachute on his sky cycle down into the canyon, broke his nose. They carried him up on a helicopter. If you talk to people in my hometown today, they don't have much good to say about evil Knievel. He got paid $6 million for doing this and left town with all kinds of unpaid bills. The only people who made any money were the Schneider brothers who built 200 outhouses for this event. (laughs) And 123 of them burned to the ground. But they had insured them. Evel Knievel uh, uh, called the Hells Angels to be his security force. I mean, what could go wrong with that? So they turned over a beer truck and handed out beer to everybody. The um, reporter from the Salt Lake Tribune said it was Idaho's version of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I had to drive the next day back to the college because I had an appointment with my major advisor, Dr. Lyle Stanford. Um, And it was really, really coming back down to earth you exit off of I-84, and if you miss the sign, miss seeing the sign, you can smell it, because there's the stockyards right there. So you go a right, a left, a right, a left, through the stockyards, and then there's the entrance to my college, um, College of Idaho, founded in 1897. We always said that if God was going to give the world an enema... Caldwell, Idaho is where he'd stick the tube. It was bad. And one look at uh, Lyle Stanford, and you'd know he's never going to experience escape velocity. He rides his little electric wheelchair around the campus and people diving out of the way as he goes. He had polio because he uh, contracted it during the 47, 48 polio epidemic. And he used that time to teach himself how to paint. So I've got an appointment in his office, and at 3.30 in the afternoon, I go in to see him. He says, come on in, sit down. He's just moving his legs, uh, twisted as they are, underneath the desk. Come on in. But there's no place to sit down, because every surface in that office is filled with books and papers and zoological um, artifacts. So he says, just move those off the chair. So I take him off the chair and I sit down, and we talk for an hour. And, uh, you know, he's the kind of teacher that makes you feel like you've, he's got all the time in the world for you. Um, and you're all that matters. So we talk about his latest painting of the Sawtooth Mountains where I love to go hiking, and nearby he has a cabin. And we talk about the struggle I'm having with... Uh, Um, chemistry class and how much I'm enjoying the ethics class and then at the end of the hour I get up uh, to go and I say oh incidentally Dr. Stanford I've decided that I want to be a teacher and he says what did you say when oh I said I want to be a teacher he said sit down that isn't all you said. What did you say? Think about it. I said, oh, incidentally, I've decided I want to be a teacher. I ordinarily wouldn't say incidentally, but uh, Dr. Stanford always liked us to collect Words that we came across that we were fascinated with. So at the final exam, at the end of the semester, he wanted at least 50 words that were new to us. Uh, So that was one of my new words. They didn't need to be science words or zoological words. He just knew how important communication was. So I said, incidentally, I've decided to be a teacher. He picked up his crutch, and he pointed at me, and he said, I never... Ever, ever want to hear you say, incidentally, I've decided I want to be a teacher. You say courageously, you say passionately, you say valiantly, but you never say incidentally. It's much too important for that. He said, I think that'll be it, Mr. Bland. Do you understand? I said, yes. I got up and walked out, and at the door, he said, Oh, incidentally, I think you'll make an excellent teacher. <laughs> So I graduated in 1975, and in 1976, Lyle Stanford had a major coronary and died. And his little headstone, this little gray headstone that's in the Weezer, Idaho, little bitty town uh, cemetery, uh, has his name, Lyle Stanford, and the dates, uh, 1910 to 1976, which makes him made him the same age that I am now. And then three words. Teacher, environmentalist, artist. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the measure of a real man. If you are interested in learning how to become a storyteller, please visit our website at southmountaincc.edu forward slash storytelling.